You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 117 for Monday the 18th of June 2018. My guest today is Barry Hutchison, who's a children's author, screenwriter and director from Scotland. He's now published over 80 books and counting. Many of those books were aimed at children or teenagers. He's written for publishers such as Penguin Random House, Nosy Crow, Egmont Stripes and Little Brown. He's written 30-plus episodes of children's comedy for CITV and regularly contributes to comics like The Beano. He's been invited to speak at schools and festivals all over the UK and beyond. Now, in 2016, he started self-publishing books for adults. His main series is Space Team, a comedy sci-fi adventure space opera, and he's recently expanded the universe to include the Dan Dedman Space Detective series. When I chatted to Barry for the podcast, I began by asking him if he's ever been anything else other than a writer. I was nine when I decided that I wanted to be an author. Um, it's, a, it's a story I've, I've told a couple of times, but never on a podcast, so I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and indulge myself. Uh, I was at my local library, and I, I was looking for books, and I, I loved my little local library. And the librarian seemed able to find any kind of book that I wanted. I would say, I want a book about robots, and she would find me this book about robots. Or I want a book about monsters, and she would find me a book about monsters. And one day when I was nine, I became obsessed with ninjas. Um, I can't quite remember why, but I went into the library and asked for a book about ninjas, and she didn't have one, and I was devastated. Um, And then she got me a notebook and a pencil and said, go and write a book about ninjas. And I did. I wrote a terrible short story about ninjas in this this fresh new notebook. And when I had finished it, she read it. And then she wrote my name on the spine and a marker pen and she put it on the shelf. And it was, you know, these scenes in movies when, um, you know, they open the Holy Grail or something and there's that heavenly choir sound and there's there's a beam of light comes down. That's kind of what it felt like, uh, seeing my name on the book. Uh, on the bookshelf. So I've kind of wanted to be an author ever since. I have had other jobs. I went through about 14 jobs in eight years, getting fired from pretty much every single one of them um, because I was always skiving off to write instead. So you went through this period of being a, a round peg in a square hole? Yeah, one, one of those. One of the, yeah, certainly. Uh, when I was 17, I wrote a film script for a film called Curse of the Bog Women and it got optioned by an American producer. And I thought, that's it, then fame and fortune awaits now. You know, I thought I had cracked it, age 17. And uh, as so often happens with these things, the film never actually happened. Uh, and then I wrote another film script, and the company who was who optioned that one went bust, went bankrupt. So um, I kind of got a bit disillusioned at that point, and, and you know, I, the, the money from the options had been long since spent, and I thought I better get a job just to pass the time until I can, because I always knew that writing was what I wanted to do. And I, and I kind of had a, for most of the time that I, that I had other jobs, I still had a confidence that writing was ultimately what I would do for a job. Um, so I, I was always writing, but I wasn't, um, I was never sending anything anywhere. I mean, this was kind of, you know, pre Kindle days, I was never sending stuff to anyone. I was just writing for my own amusement, but still with the ultimate goal that one day some of this stuff would get published. At 17, I wouldn't have known, though, how to even go about getting a script option. So how did you learn that stuff? Did you have any form of support when you write? Uh, no, random luck. My Most of my career is based on random luck. Uh, I, I put the script, there was Francis Ford Coppola had started a website uh, zoetrope.com it was part of this production company American Zoetrope and it was one of these I think it was the first website where, where you could get peer reviewed you could put your script up and if you reviewed three scripts then people would review yours as well and you would get feedback 
So I, I thought it was a useful way of kind of finding out if this thing that I had written was any good. At that stage, I was obsessed with screenplays. I was reading screenplays, uh, the Reservoir Dog screenplay, and uh, reading about filmmaking in general. And I thought filmmaking and screenwriting was the direction that I saw myself going. So I put this on the website, and one of the people who got it to review was uh, an independent American producer based in New York. And he contacted me and said, I'd be interested in optioning this. I didn't know what an option was, so I went, okay, what does that involve? And they paid me what at the time seemed, it was $5,000 the option, which seemed to a 17-year-old living in the highlands of Scotland like an extraordinary amount of money I was being paid. Um, so, so yeah, so just random luck. I didn't send it to anyone in, in Hollywood. I didn't try and get an agent. It was just discovered off this website. And let's talk about that, because I think you've lived in the, the highlands of Scotland for, for many years. Now, um, around Fort William, is that correct? That is correct, yes. At the foot of Ben Nevis, the UK's highest mountain. I love that area. I went there as a kid, went there when we got married, and keep coming back. And I know, for instance, that the cinema has gone now, and it's not yes. what you would call a cultural centre um, as such, you know, in terms of big city kind of culture centre. So That is a polite way of putting it, yes. <laughs> well, I, I went to see a, a Sylvester Stallone film there years ago. It was quite distressed to see the cinema had gone last time I went. But, you know, so therefore, you haven't got the kind of groups and support networks that you would have, say, in Glasgow or Edinburgh. So I'm wondering what kind of kept you going as a, as a youngster. I mean, that, that librarian deserves a medal. Yes, she absolutely does. Yeah, I had I had a couple of teachers like that. I also had one who who told me not to be so ridiculous when I said I wanted to be a writer. He told me not to be so ridiculous and to go and be an English teacher instead. Um, and as it happens, I randomly stumbled upon him. I was doing a, an event at the Edinburgh Book Festival a, a few years ago, and I randomly stumbled upon him just before I went on to do my event and took great delight in rubbing his face in the fact that I had a sold-out event at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Um, but, yeah, it's not been it's not easy up here to, to make those kind of contacts, but the internet has been... Uh, the internet has really been what has given me a career. I mean, I, between... From that American Zootrope website, I met uh, a very good friend of mine, Tommy Dombavant, who... Um, we have been in touch. That was 20-something years ago now, uh, 23 years ago. Uh, we've been in touch pretty much every day since then online. We we swap ideas, we swap stories to read them, and um, and basically our kind of careers have kind of mirrored each other in some ways. We get into children's books at the same time. We've, we've collaborated in a few animated projects that we've written, and... Now he's getting into indie books as well, around about the same time as I am. So, so having the internet there and having uh, writers groups online and and that sort of thing has been has been what's made the difference for me. I'm also interested that you you got a, a film script option at 17. Now I was I think writing stories that are marginally uh, you know I'm, I'm writing stories that are marginally better than that now, but uh, <laughs> my, my my stories at 17 you know were not very good. And there, were, there wasn't a support network in any way for that when I was 17. So uh, are you naturally talented and gifted? Oh, I wish, I wish. No, I just, I, I, I wrote basically every day from, from when I was, well, before the age of nine, but, but certainly from the age of nine, I have written pretty much every day. And I've written everything from comedy scripts to horror comic strips to, you know, novels, short stories, songs poems all that stuff um and i have just i have just practiced a lot so there is no um innate skill in there i wouldn't have said but uh lots and lots of of practice and um and i've been lucky you know in the years since then to work with a lot of different editors online and and uh, through the publishers and a, an agent who represents my traditionally published children's books so even though there's not necessarily a great network around me now in terms of the location I'm at, online I have quite a, a wide network. But back then, yeah, that, that didn't exist. And it was just a case of, of uh, writing for my own amusement. You mentioned the cinema in Fort William. You know, um, when movies came out, 
then it would be a year until they arrived at Fort William Cinema sometimes because it was such a small place out of the way. And I would see an advert for, you know, E.T., for example, and because I knew it might be a year until I got to see that movie, I would write my own version and I'd, I'd, I'd make up the script for it and what it, what I thought it would be like based on the trailer or based on the posters. Um, and a couple of times I actually convinced myself that the version that was in my head was the real movie. So when I came to watch the movie, you know, 10, 15 years later on, on video or whatever it was, I'd be confused because I was convinced I'd already seen it and, you know, there were there were different things happened in it because I had imagined those things happening. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been a challenge, certainly, with the location of map, but um, not a, not an insurmountable one. So with the um, having a script optioned at uh, 17 and $5,000, as you say, it's just a remarkable amount of money uh, at that age. And then yeah. going for some jobs, you know, day jobs that where you clearly uh, it wasn't going to be what you did. How did you then, usually reality comes along and you think, I've got to actually earn a living and it needs to be a sort of sustainable living. When, when did that kick in and how did it kick in? Uh, it, it never really did. It, like the, the, the jobs I had were all, I deliberately picked jobs that wouldn't in any way challenge me and that didn't require any great thought. I worked in a few call centres. Um, I, I worked in a bar. I worked in... Uh, blockbuster video back in the day. Um, I made wedding videos until I forgot to hit the record button uh, during the speeches. In fact, worse than that, I hit um, I hit the record button once more than I should have done. So basically, when I thought the camera was recording, it was off, and when I thought it was off, it was recording. So I had an hour of just my feet walking between uh, parts of the venue. And then, you know, I missed all the speeches and all that stuff. So that that came to a crashing halt then. So basically everything I was doing was, was filling time because I knew that ultimately writing was, was what I wanted to do and that I wouldn't be satisfied if that wasn't what I was doing. Uh, my first my first kind of success I had, the first uh, children's book that got picked up, it was picked up by HarperCollins. Uh, and I wrote that over the course of a year and a half. But I only had, at that point, because I had a, a new baby, my son had just been born, I was I was working, a job. I'd, I'd taken a kind of a managerial position in this call centre because I knew I, we needed more money because we had a baby coming. Um, and at that point, I, I'd kind of thought, well, I might have to give up on the writing dream. But I became, I kind of doubled down on it. And uh, I, I had this story I wanted to write, but I knew I only had five to ten minutes a day in which to write it. So for five to ten minutes every day, I would sit down and I would write in you know, a 250, 300 words, sometimes more, never less. Um, and then over a year and a half, I, I finished the book. And that was my first book that got picked up by, by HarperCollins Children's Books, and it became a series of six, and, and, and I've been full-time author since then. So HarperCollins is... Big publisher, very, very exciting. Yes. Um, yes. So that's not bad straight out of the gate. It's not bad, is it? Uh, but again, it all comes down to luck. Uh, people keep asking, you know, how, how can I you know, replicate what you're doing? And, and it's kind of impossible, really. I mean, I, I saw an advert in my local newspaper up here in the Highlands. Uh, there was a, a literary agency. We're running a competition where if you sent in uh, your manuscript, they, it was a children's uh, agency. If you sent in your manuscript, they would read it. The first of uh, the best ten would get feedback on their their manuscript from this literary agency. So I sent it in, and about four weeks later, I got a phone call from one of the agents who said, "Would like to remove you from the competition." And I thought, "God, was it that bad that <laughs> you actually?" <laughs> You're actually phoning me up to kick me out personally. Um, and they said, we'd like to to represent you and represent this this, this book instead. So I went, all right. You know, and, uh, and they sent it to, the first people they sent it to was HarperCollins. And HarperCollins said, okay, could you do a six book series? And I said, yes, definitely. And then they said, great, can you give us the next five ideas by two o'clock this afternoon because we have a meeting about it. So I then had to go away and come up with five story ideas and sent them in, you know, 
really nervous thinking they're going to hate these and and instead they, they took all six books in the series so how did you how did you learn to write something like that uh, you know as, as fast as you did it were you just kind of writing what you wanted to and it just happened to hit right or were you writing in any kind of formulaic way for children uh no i hadn't uh i, I it was originally it wasn't going to be for children originally i wrote it i started writing it as a, a novel for adults and then i thought i don't have the the time to write because uh, at that stage I wasn't thinking about indie it was but it was pre Kindle so so a full length adult novel was kind of eighty thousand words up and I thought this is going to take three years based on the, the rate I'm writing it if I if I if I have ten minutes a day it's going to take me three years if it's a forty thousand word book it'll take me a year and a half so I thought I'll make it a forty thousand word book for kind of nine to twelve year olds. Horror was was pretty big in in the kids market at that point, so that made sense. But I didn't uh, I didn't write it to market as we would say now. I just wrote this story that I was was interested in. The story is about a boy um, whose imaginary friend from when he's four comes back when he's twelve and tries to kill him in a variety of horrible ways. Um, and uh, and I just like the concept of just an easy to sum up one sentence concept. Um, that, that appealed to me really, so so that's why I went ahead and did that one. How did you find that Harper Collins experience and writing the six books? Was it you know supported? Did they intrude at all? Did they let you get on with it? I was really surprised actually because I thought um, you know this is Harper Collins. They obviously they you know they've put out lots of books and they obviously know what they're talking about and. Um, the the first book they gave me some notes on that and, the, and their notes massively improved that first book so uh, I think it took about five drafts to get the first book right and then when it came to writing the second book I was I was terrified it was that second book syndrome thinking I'm going to send this in they're going to realise they've made a terrible mistake they're going to demand their money back and this is all going to be a disaster so I had six months to write book two and I sat on it I finished it in about uh, two months and I sat on it for four months doing nothing with it um, and then I eventually sent it in and it was the only book I've ever written where there were no there was no second draft they just they thought yep this is this is perfect let's go with that um, so so that was a nice surprise um, over the over the course of the six books I learned to kind of, because that was the only one that didn't have notes. Some of the other books had copious amounts of notes. And I was quite nervous at, at saying no to things to start with, because I thought, well, they know better than I do. So I'll just go along with, with what they say. And it was after speaking to my agent and, and kind of she encouraged me to stand my ground on things that I really believed in. And I, and I was surprised that, the editor at HarperCollins went, yeah, okay, that's you, you know, good point. Let's let's go with with your idea, um, and that was kind of you know a bit of a revelation to me. It was like actually well, maybe you know they actually think I know what I'm doing, <laughs> which which I certainly didn't feel that way, but I had convinced them that I did. What do you get from an agent? What's their part of the deal? Uh, well, I've been lucky. I think it depends on the agent, really. I've been very lucky. My agent, uh, Catherine, has been great. She's been hugely supportive throughout um, my entire career. She's been um, negotiating in terms of, of uh, you know, but the, the initial offer from HarperCollins, she got that drastically improved by negotiating with them and um, other publishers since then. I've, I've done over 80 books for children altogether, um, and many of those I've, I've only done because she... She got me them. You know, she she publishers approached her and she recommended I take on and write certain books for them. So she's brought me a lot of work. Um, she has she's got me paid a lot better for for the work that I have done. And generally, she's just been a really good sounding board throughout my career. Like I said, like we mentioned earlier, quite isolated up here in the Highlands, but she's been a great sounding board for me to go. Oh, I've got this idea. What do you think? Um, and she'll either say that's terrible or that's potentially good, or I know exactly where we can sell this, so go and write it now. What's the deal when you're a, a kid's author for somebody like HarperCollins? Do you have to do 
um, big tours of schools to promote uh, you said, Well, when I first started, you didn't have to. It was certainly encouraged. And, and in terms of in terms of raising a profile of a book, then there, there are kind of not many better ways, I wouldn't say. You know, if you go into a school and you talk to 300 kids and get them all excited um, and they all then want to buy the book, it's a great marketing approach. Nowadays, I think it's kind of compulsory that publishers want to know that authors will do speaking events, that they'll do festivals, that they'll go into schools, that they'll do all that stuff. So, because I think marketing budgets have shrunk. So there isn't necessarily the money in publishers to go and, and run magazine adverts or to, uh, you know, put posters in railway stations. Not that they have, or it's rare that they did that anyway. But, but even more rare now. But So what they want instead is authors to go out and do a lot of the legwork and, and, and speak and get readers interested that way. I'm a former primary school teacher. I can remember handing out the Scholastic magazines mm. to the kids. Yeah. Now, I'm assuming yeah. that that's kind of like the holy grail to get in one of those. Well, kind of. It's kind of a, more like a poison chalice, really. Um, you can, in terms of, there's that whole thing again of, uh, authors getting paid in exposure. You know that quite often book festivals will say, "Can you come and speak at the festival?" It's a you know two and a half hour drive each way. We don't want to pay you any money, but you'll get exposure. So if you make that five hour round trip and twenty people are there, you know it kind of doesn't feel like you're really being paid that much. Um, and the Scholastic Book Club is much the same in that they might go right. We're going to buy. 10,000 copies of, of the book for to sell it through our book club. But you, the author, might earn three or four or five pence per copy sold, you know. So it's a it's a pittance, really. Uh, and that's kind of the way the whole publishing industry seems to be going with huge, deep discounts. You know, if you've got a book sold in Asda, it's great in that lots of people see it and lots of people potentially buy it but what you get financially for that is not very much money with that harper collins book deal then um presumably it's enough to make a living you, you've got a family it's enough to get by with is it, is it a reasonable income well and again it depends like the, the difference between traditional publishing and, and indie publishing um is that you get the advance so the way it works with most big publishers is um, if they're giving you, let's say you've got a book deal for, well, well, we'll make it simple first of all. Let's say you've got a book deal for one book and they go, okay, for this book, we're giving you £30,000 advance. Now, that would be a massive advance in, in, in this day and age. More likely, you might get 3000 But let's say they're, be, they're being crazy generous and it's a £30,000 advance. Now, you will get £10,000 when you sign the contract. When you deliver and they accept the final draft of that manuscript, which might be a year down the line, it might be two years down the line, then you will get another £10,000. You will get the second third of that advance. When the book finally hits the shelves, then you will get the third part of that advance. So again, that could be a year, a year and a half later. So for that £30,000, you know, you, you, it might be spread over three years, might be spread over longer. I, I, it depends on the publishing schedule of, of that publisher. And then um, that money has to be paid back. So your, this kind of standard paperback royalty is about 7.5% of the cover price. So if you've got a book that sells at eight ninety nine, so you're getting round about sixty pence per sale. Now, before you make any more money, you need to earn enough sixty pences to pay off that initial thirty thousand pound. And only once you've paid off that thirty thousand pound will you start to see more money coming in. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? It does. And I'm assuming also that your agent has to take a cut of that 60 pence. Yes, agent, the agent will take a cut of the advance. The agent will take a cut of the royalties as the, if you ever earn them. You know, the, um, 
So, so the agent doesn't take a cut of those 60 pences to start with. The agent will take any a cut of any money the publisher pays to you. So we'll take a cut of that 30,000, and then once you have earned out that advance, whatever payment you get after that, they will take a cut of that royalties payment. And when you get paid your royalties, um, we all have to adjust. Those of us who are indie authors have to adjust. You're not getting them every month, are you? No, uh, you're getting them r- roughly every six months. So basically, a book that sells in uh, HarperCollins and most publishers have um, accounting periods. So, um, you know, six-monthly accounting periods. So it'll be in January until the end of June and then July till, till the end of December. But if you sell a book in, in January then it's included in the January to the end of June royalty period. So come the end of June, the publisher then will take two to three months to compile everyone's royalty statements and to pay that money. So if you sell a book in January, you can be looking at September before you actually see that money in your bank account. What happens if you don't earn out your advance? Is there any element of clawback or do you just see a bit of tumbleweed and no one ever speaks to you ever again? Yeah, basically that second one. The idea is um, that advance is that, you know, the publisher taking a chance, basically. They're taking a gamble. Uh, so they they say, right, um, we think this is going to earn £30,000, let's say. So we'll pay you that £30,000. If it doesn't, then they've lost the gamble, basically. And of course, they've got staff to pay. You know, marketing teams have got to pay for printing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's like Dragon's Den. I always think that they're, they're they're betting they're betting on either a horse or a donkey. They're never sure which. Yeah, and I think that's why increasingly we're seeing, particularly in children's publishing, we're seeing more and more celebrity books. So David Williams kind of started the trend over here, but now basically every kind of Z-list celebrity has a children's book coming out um, because publishers think those are a safer bet. Um, often those books are, are ghostwritten and it's just the celebrity's name on the front, which is used to, to sell it. Um, but yeah, there's a kind of, the, I think there's a, a lot of concern in children's publishing at the moment that there's some really potentially exciting, interesting new voices being passed over in favour of whichever Z-list celebrity happens to be popular at the time. I think a, a lot of people would be astonished to hear that that's the payment model because it is the big aspiration to be traditionally published. But those low figures and those uh, pa- payment schedules, um, that's quite hard to live with, isn't it? Like, I, I... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would say the last... Um, I've been traditionally published for 10 years and uh, over that 10 years, there has never been a time that... I wasn't worried about whether I could pay my bills in two months' time. No, I knew I could say I've got enough money for two months and hopefully something else will come in and I'll be able to pay my bills in three months. And it always did, luckily enough. Again, thanks to my agent a lot of the time who who was getting me work. Um, but also because I'm I'm quite versatile in terms of I can I, you know, I've done a lot of comics work, I've done some TV work as well as the books and, and I've done non-fiction, I've done fiction, I've done books for a variety of age groups um, but there's never been a time until I started indie publishing where I felt comfortable knowing that I've got I can pay the bills you know in a year's time I was really um, interested actually when I was you know doing the research that I, I didn't realize you'd done uh, writing for the Beano, yes, which is just like that's so cult, isn't it? That's just an amazing experience. Yeah, well, I, I grew up reading the Beano. Before I read books, I read comics. Um, I read the Beano, I read the Dandy, Wizard and Chips, and all these all these British comics, as well as all the American comics, Spider Man and Batman and the Hulk and all that stuff. Um, so I loved I loved comics. Comics is what got me into reading. So being able to 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 write for the Beano, which was which was so kind of key and instrumental to, to forming my childhood love of reading, was was just an amazing experience. And I, I, and I've written over a hundred Beano strips. I'm, I, I've lost count of how many strips I've written. But this is, I mean, this is a real art form writing comics. My my kids, I have a 
the knockout, which actually merged with Wizard and Jeff. Uh-huh. So this is how old I am. And, um, you know, and, and my kids, they've gone through my kids and the, the backs are hanging off them. But they're re- it's real kind of classic um, storytelling in just a page or two pages. How do you write something like that? Usually, especially with the Beano and comments like that, usually it's it's all building up to one joke. It's basically it's it's kind of a long form joke. If you're just telling uh, a funny story, and at the end of that there is a twist that that forms the punchline. That's basically the structure for most Beano strips. Um, is you know is the setup and the build up and then the punchline at the end. So it's just like telling a joke. You're you're breaking the joke into different panels. Is probably the best way I can describe it. And so people like you write the stories. I, again, I always just assumed, you know, as you do as a kid, it's just some artist doing the whole lot, but they're actually sort of storyboarded. Then. Yeah, basically I'll, I'll write um, as different comic writers, different comic artists work in, in, in their own individual ways. The way I tend to work is, is I literally break it down. So, you know, page one, panel one, I will write a very loose description of, of the action that's going on. So who, which characters are in the scene, if there's any prop which need to be in the scene, and then I will say, you know, character's name and their first line of dialogue. And then if another character speaks, then their name and another line of dialogue. And then panel two, and I'll do the same again. I'll break down what happens in that panel. Some writers go into more detail and they say, you know, page one, this is laid out with three long panels horizontally and, and, uh, describe the perspective and describe the exact positioning within the frame. Others are, are, are looser than I am and will and we'll just really name the characters that are in there, mention the dialogue and, and that's it. And the artist then has complete control over how they're positioned within the frame. So it depends on, on the writer really and depends on the artist. Sometimes an artist will decide rightly so that they know better than, than I do and, and they'll completely change the way I had I had described the layout of the panel, which is great, you know, when that happens. So, uh, it, yeah, it just depends on on how the, each individual writer and artist works, really. And, and then also another sign of your versatility is I know you've also done some children's comedy for CI TV. Now, again, I guess you're almost back, you're almost kind of back to screenplays, but you're a, a different um, culture of writing once again with telly. <laughs> Yeah, and again, it, uh, absolute just stroke of luck that that happened. I um, there was a, the the producer of the program I, I wrote for Bottom Knocker Street um, was appeared as a character in another series, a, a series for kind of two year olds called The Bop. It's a musical series, and I was watching it with my daughter one day. Uh, his name's Keith, and I I tweeted something a bit disturbing about the bops especially Keith and uh, and Keith from the bops replied to me on Twitter uh, and I felt kind of a bit oh no I've, I've really insulted this man but he turned out to be just a very funny uh, really on the same kind of wavelength as me humour wise and um, we kind of became friends and they made a video especially for my daughter and I sent some books for his son and then he said, we're, we're putting together this, this series, 52 episodes. Do you want to write a couple of episodes for it? So I, I wrote uh, a kind of sample for them. And in the end, I ended up writing 36 of the 52 episodes um, and uh, and then got to go down and, and see it filming. I make a cameo appearance in it and, and things. But yeah, again, just random luck. Uh, uh, TV pays pretty well, doesn't it? And also, um, you can get licensing rights across the world and things like that. Did you did you get lucky with it? Uh, yeah, well, luckyish. I mean, it was very low budget, but it was it, it was that was the first time um, in about six or seven years at that point when when that came out that I that we went on holiday. I felt confident enough with financially that we could go on holiday. Um, and we bought a new car. Well, not a, not a new car because that would be crazy. But we bought. We bought a new to us car, which was um, far, far superior to the banger that I'd been driving around <laughs> prior to that. So, so yeah, it was, and I still get um, like payments kind of every six months or so. There'll be, you know, a few hundred quid will arrive from the Republic of Ireland, having been watching Ottenbock Street or, or whatever. So, um, but yeah, it's great. I mean, it's, it's still, I loved. Um, 
it's, it's a weird, very weird series to work on. Uh, uh, but I am, yeah, very proud of the scripts that I wrote for it. But we're getting into something that, and we'll, we'll probably get back to it when we come into your, your indie career, but we're getting into a, a key component here of being an author, and that is this concept of residual income. Yes. That you do yes. work once and you get paid for it many times. Now, with, you know, over 70, I think it's nearly 80, is it, books to your name, with, with, with children's books now, for instance, you, you must have generated a reasonable level of residual income from that. Well, you would think so. <laughs> uh Lots of the books that I wrote um, were books that I wrote because it was that thing of not knowing what you know the next two months would bring financially. Uh, I took some deals which my agent kind of advised against, but uh, I thought I need to feed my children. So um, deals which were you know here's a flat fee of a thousand pounds, write us a, a twenty five thousand word book by Monday. And and I went okay um, because I needed a thousand pounds, you know. So so there was a lot of the books. There's no residual income from uh, others. Any, any of them that have my name on the front, then then yes, I get royalties and I'll get um, money from from foreign right sales. But the problem, as I mentioned earlier, is that is that discounting is so great and your royalty percentage is so small from from a traditionally published book, you know, we're talking seven and a half percent of a of a children's book which sells at four ninety nine. Um and often it's it's being sold at a greater than fifty percent discount, which means according to a kind of standard contract, that my seven and a half percent is based on whatever price the bookseller pays. So if Amazon buys those books in at two pounds, then I get seven and a half percent of pounds so i get 15 pence but if you're getting 15 pence a time you have to sell an awful lot of books to um to make any kind of decent money so my my harper collins books uh most of them have earned out but that was through foreign right sales and that's why I've, I've i've earned i've paid back that advance and i'm earning royalties but in a in a six month period from from HarperCollins royalties, for example, I make more in a single day from indie publishing than I make from that entire six months. Now, I, I know I'm pushing you on this. It's only because I know that we've got a success story coming around the corner. But, but I, you know, I think people who I, I've just been at a crime festival all weekend, for instance, and it's been predominantly traditional, and that's really all that people can see at the end of their nose. Yeah. So they yeah. still have this kind of this, we have a little nut session for the nutters who are indie in the morning, you know, nice and early on a Sunday morning, tucked out the way. And then everybody else is sort of all lovely traditional. But I met somebody at, a, at another event that I went to recently who said she'd earned, I think it was £10 in two years yeah. from a traditional yeah. deal. And I said, I'm doing crap and I earn more than that in a day. Yeah. You know, how, yeah. how could you even contemplate that as an option? No, well, well um, the, the two things I would say about that. One, children's publishing, I don't think... I don't think Kindle is is there yet on children's publishing. I think children love having books. They love going into bookshops and and physically picking up a book and flicking through it and owning that book. So I think it's very difficult to go indie with with children's books. But um, I wouldn't at all now consider going traditional for books for grown-ups. In fact, I got an email earlier in the week from a publisher who were interested in Space Team. Um, and I, I turned them down flat because there's nothing a publisher to me can bring to to the series, that, one, that I can't do myself, um, and two, without stealing a lot of money out of my pocket, basically. So, um, so no, I can't, I would not contemplate a traditional publishing deal for grown-up books now unless in very specific circumstances like if I wanted to to maybe reach new readers that I might not be able to reach by myself to try and bring them to my indie book so almost like a lost leader I might consider it for that um, but by and large for me now um, indie publishing is 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 not not just the future it's the present so what I, I want to know then is uh, there sounds like there is some sort of pain uh, involved with the traditional publishing. I'm sort of astonished that you could have created such a body of work and that 
it's you're not living in a mansion and jet setting all over the world. <laughs> uh, that, I mean, that, that that seems astonishing to me. Does it seem astonishing to you or, or, or not? It, it does to me. Uh, it doesn't know. Uh, you know, had you if if I could go back in time, if I me from ten years ago, if you asked him that question, yes, he would be gobsmacked. But I've seen. Um, I've had all that whittled out of me over the past 10 years uh, with that kind of gradual acceptance that that making making lots of money from traditional publishing, unless you are a celebrity, unless you uh, the publisher decides to give you their their full backing with a with a big marketing campaign, which very rarely happens these days, um, then it's it's impossible really. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I would have been shocked, but having lived through it, I'm now just bitterly disappointed. Let's then find out what got you into uh, in, indie publishing. Then, what, what made you what put it on your radar and, and just made you decide to have a go? Uh, it's been on my radar for about two or three years, um, slightly longer, probably. I was aware of it going on and I, it was one of these things I get I kept thinking I must take a look at that but I just didn't have time because I was I was constantly struggling for work constantly trying to bring in new work that would pay me I didn't have time to go well I'm going to write this book and put it out and just see what happens and what actually happened in the end was most of most children's authors will tell you that um, becoming a children's author is now basically a route into becoming a public speaker. So if you if you have children's books out, then schools and um, libraries and festivals will pay you to come and speak by and large. Some of them some will try and get you to do it for free, um, but most will pay you to come and speak or to run writing workshops or something. So that is where the, the bulk of most children's authors' income comes from. And the book money is an occasional bonus. So I was asked by a school to come and talk about how their children could publish their own work. And I had absolutely no idea. As far as I was concerned, you you typed the words in a Word document, you emailed it to a publisher in London, and between six months and two years later, a book appeared as if by magic. And that was it. That was my understanding of the publishing process. So I thought, well, I'll look into it you know, so that I can start running these workshops. I saw nobody else was running workshops for schools that were about self-publishing. So I thought, if I can do that, that's a new kind of string to my bow and I can potentially get more more, um, workshop work. So uh, I I wrote a little short serial called The Bug, which was a kind of post-apocalyptic sci-fi thing. And I, I put that self-published that, and I kind of learned how to do it then. And when I was doing it, um, no pun intended, I got bitten by the bug, the self-publishing bug. And um, even though that series or that serial didn't do very well, in fact, people, some people bought it and and people reviewed it, and and I, I kind of realised then that this was a viable thing. And I had this idea. For a for a full length novel, for a sci fi novel, which I'd always intended to to write and then try and sell to a publisher, so I thought I'll try that out. I'll try a proper book rather than a serial, and I'll see what happens. Uh, and that was that was the first space team book. And and when I put that out, immediately I saw there was a you know it was night and day between what happened with the bug and what happened with space team. With the bug, it was I was maybe making kind of that you know, three to ten pounds a day. You know, ten pounds was a really good day. Uh three pounds was an averagely good day. And then Space Team came out and in the first month it made a thousand pounds. Um and I thought, ooh, hang on, there's something here. Uh and then I immediately started work on book two and and it just has grown and, and snowballed from there really. Now, I hear a lot of stories like this. People say, oh, I released a book and off it went. I mean, was it, you know, what was the secret? Well, because people seldom release something and people just magically find it. There, there must be another part to the recipe. Uh, I, I wish there was. Well, there is. I mean, the, the only other part I can really say is I had 
um, between writing the bug, because the bug was a bit of a flop, I went looking for people that knew what they were doing. And I, I stumbled upon, I found keyboards first, and then I, I stumbled upon Michael Anderley's uh, 20 Books to 50K group on Facebook when there were only oh, two or 300 people in it. And and I started kind of learning from these guys. And I started um, trying to help in my own kind of cack-handed way because I didn't know anything about indie publishing, but I knew about writing. I'd been writing professionally for, for a decade. I uh, I knew about the kind of traditional publishing industry, how that worked. I knew about uh, general kind of, you know, computer things, for example, problems with, with Microsoft Word. And I and I just started trying to be useful because I like being useful. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a deliberate um you know strategy to get to get people to to help me out. It was just I like, you know, being useful in these groups. So I I I, I kinda I, I, I tried to help people out as much as I could. They in turn seemed happy to help me out with advice. And when I mentioned that the first Space Team book was coming out, then then five or six people on the group who were all not quite big hitters were Craig Martell, Michael Anderley, uh, and and various others, um, were were happy to, to email their mailing list and, and tell the mailing list. So I spent no money on marketing based team until book three came out. Um and uh, but kind of thanks to those guys helping to spread the word to the, the newsletters and on social media, people discovered it. And because the people who'd shared it were, were sci-fi writers themselves, then the also bots on you know on Amazon made sense and, and, and it just seemed to click nicely. That is a, a big but though, isn't it? Because if you're able to as a you're not a new author, but you're a newly self-published author. And I know you write your indies as Barry J. Hutchison rather than Barry Hutchison. So uh, you've got for a separate name, haven't you? So it's a new new brand is what I'm saying, I guess. Yes, yes. It's an advantage, isn't it? It's an advantage to be able to jump on coattails like that. Isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I didn't know these guys. I didn't. It was, it was just I had joined the group. I'd got involved. And when people asked me how to how to be successful as a as a, an indie author, you know, I, I wish I knew the secret, but the only advice I can really give is be nice to people. Go into groups, make friends, help them out, and they in turn will help you out. So, so you know, there was. I didn't know Michael Anderley or, or Craig or, or any of these guys, but um, because they'd seen me helping other people out, they were happy to help me out as well. Now, um, Space Team has been uh, phenomenally popular, and um, and I, I say I acknowledge that before I say to you, but you know the covers are, and I, I use inverted commas here, they, they look dodgy. Uh, so you know, if you gave them to Stuart Bache, who's kind of the the, the, the probably the best known among indie circles, you know, cover designer. He'd probably run a mile, but they work brilliantly for the genre, don't they? Yeah, that was it. Was a kind of deliberate thing. It was you know, I looked at. Um, I, I didn't have any money to 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 pay for covers, so I decided that I was going to do them myself. And I decided um, I, I didn't have the skills to do like a genuinely great cover. So I thought, how can I best capture? The spirit of the book, and um, and you know the book is uh, as a is quite motley crew. They're kind of they, they as a team are quite amateurish, and are quite, there's there's um, is it, it's got a certain feel to it. And I tried to capture that feel on the cover, um, and I wanted it to very clearly say this is a comedy science fiction. So I put a, a spaceship in the front. <laughs> And I put an astronaut on the front, and um, it's, it wasn't working. So I thought I'm going to with my background in comics. Uh, I decided to give the astronaut a speech bubble, and um, and I shared that. Almost, what do you think of this? And every single person told me, "Get rid of the speech bubble. It doesn't work." But I was determined that I was going to stick with it. I took their advice on all other aspects of the cover, but the speech bubble I was determined was was staying. And it's kind of become the brand for the series. Each cover now has a speech bubble on it, and and it seems to have just caught people's attention. You know, when they're scrolling by the thumbnails, they see a speech bubble, but the text is too small to be able to see. So they then click through to see what the speech bubble says. I don't know. I don't know what the thinking is. 
But um, but ironically enough, I saw a blog post a while ago that someone was rebranding their um, their book, their comedy sci-fi book, and they were listing the tropes of comedy sci-fi covers. And on there now was um, a speech bubble. And it's like no, nobody had done speech bubbles until Space Team. So I have started a trend <laughs> of speech bubbles on covers. So tell me how things have changed since you went indie. Oh, in huge way. Um, as I said to the, the publisher that emailed me the other day asking about um, whether about selling them the rights to Space Team and, and traditionally publishing it. And they were quite sneering about traditional publishing. Um, and I, I kind of pointed out to them that, that the last 18 months of indie publishing has given me the creative and financial freedom that 10 years of traditional publishing never could. And, um, and that my bank manager certainly isn't sneering about self-publishing like, uh, like this publisher was. So um, I think, yeah, it's a combination of, um, one, I know I have enough money to survive the next year, you know, which is a, an amazing position to be in. Um, and, you know, we're looking at, at, at buying a house. We've all been renting because no one would give a traditionally published author a mortgage. So we've been renting, but we're now at the stage of looking to buy a house. Um, but creatively, the just the freedom of not having to... I've been able to say no to, to so many projects, which has been amazing because I haven't been... My stress levels have dropped immensely. Um but one of the things that always bothered me with traditional publishing was that you could come up with an idea that you absolutely loved and you would um, pitch that idea to an editor and the editor could love it. And they would then, you know, six months would go by when they were discussing it and then it would go to the sales and marketing team and the publisher and they would say, nah, I don't think we like that. And that was it dead. The project was dead. So you'd invested six months in bouncing this idea around and maybe you'd You'd written a few chapters and and it died, and that was it gone then. And you had to try and come up with something else to pitch. No matter how much you loved that project, you know, you might try and pitch it to a few publishers, but if none of them took it on, then it was dead. With indie publishing, I can go, I've had a great idea for a story. I then write that story, I then publish that story, and the whole process takes two months. So from me going, Oh, that sounds like a fun idea. Two months later, I can be racking up money. That book can be selling to people, and two months after that, that money's in my bank account. So the the creative freedom, but just the those frustrations that has taken away of all those aborted projects that never went anywhere because somebody within a publishing company decided they didn't want to do it. Are you doing any traditional work at all now, and would you consider any? Uh, yeah, I'm still doing uh, some children's books. I've still got um, um, I've got two series that I've been working on. Um, I've got some other ideas for children's books that I would I would probably publish traditionally at this stage because, as I say, I don't think the the children's Kindle market is quite there yet. Um, but that's not to say it won't be. Uh, but I I enjoy part of me enjoys working with with some of the publishers I work with. Some of the publishers I've worked with, I hope I never have to work with again. Um, but but some that I'm working with, the two I'm working with at the moment, I got on really well with them. And, and it's nice to have that that collaboration aspect as well. You know, I like being surprised by by cover art that they come back with or, or um, illustrations they've come back with or, or if they tell me they've got some new marketing plan. And I, I quite like that. But I like that as as an aside to what I now see as my main business, which is the indie publishing. So it's almost like traditional publishing. We always talk about vanity publishing, and um, self publishing was always looked at as being vanity publishing. I think it's almost now gone the other way, in that um, the people who feel they need that that recognition and respect of being a published author only want to go traditionally, and it's a it's about that recognition and respect it's not about the money definitely because because the money is just not there unless you 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 know strike it really lucky but it's about that that validation almost of like i am a i am a published author whereas all the indie guys are are, are making all the money because they're, they're able to move quicker they're able to 
um, to, to put out books, you know, far faster than, than traditional publishing does. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I would be, I'm, I, I see myself continuing children's publishing certainly for a while anyway, um, for as long as I, as I'm enjoying it. But, um, the indie publishing is for me where the future, my future lies. Are you Amazon exclusive? Are you getting the benefit of the page rates? I am. Yes, I'm Amazon exclusive at the moment. I'm actually I'm, I'm toying about going wide. I'm not sure yet. Um, the space team is still, even the first book still brings in good numbers of page reads. So I don't, I, I genuinely don't know if I can make as much wide as I do in, in AU. Um, I notice also that you're doing merch on Redbubble, which is really, really cool. You've got Space Team merch. How easy was that to achieve? Yeah, through Redbubble and stuff is really easy. I mean, I mean, one of the advantages I have is that um, I've, I've used Photoshop. I've used Photoshop on and off for a few years, but when I was coming to to produce the covers for Space Team, I, I really sat down and, and tried to figure out how it all works and and I experimented a lot with with Photoshop, so I'm, I'm pretty decent with it now. I mean, I'm not I'm not good by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm decent with it. So, and, and as a result of that, I can create images based on the books. I can I can think out of the covers. I can do all that stuff. And so, Redbubble just lets you upload images, choose which products those images appear on. So, I could go, okay, I want this image to appear on a T-shirt and a mug. Um, and uh, a vinyl block and a pillowcase, and those items then become available for people to buy. And I, once people buy them, Redbubble prints it. They send them the item, and then they'll pay me uh, uh, my percentage, which is you know for a T-shirt I might make three pounds, four pounds, or something. Um, so, so basically, once you've uploaded it, you. There's no more work to be done other than occasionally promoting it, you know. Brilliant. So um, congratulations, first of all. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a fantastic story. I know Space Team's doing really well. And um, you did a brilliant talk at 20 Books to 50K. Stole the show there. You know, so, so putting some fantastic information back into the community. Um, you, you've had a heck of a journey and a very, very interesting one. Where do you see yourself going now in the next, say, sort of three to five years? What's your game plan? Well, I've actually just formed a limited company, so an actual publishing company. Um, there are a few reasons behind that. Uh, one being, I want to try and get into, I want to try and compete with traditional publishers and get into bookshops. Now, because of my traditional publishing background, I have quite a lot of contacts in independent bookshops in in Waterstones, the big UK wide chain bookstore. Um, and I have some contacts in Forbidden Planet, which is, a, you know, as you know, a UK-wide comic shop. So we're looking to do a, a limited print run, first of all, 500 copies, and do fancy embossed covers. So not print-on-demand, but actually 500 copies printed and delivered in boxes to my office, and then try and distribute those through bookshops. So that's that's the first thing we're, we're looking to do. My wife and I now works with me in the company. Um, so doing that, and then also possibly looking to do a Michael Anderley-style collaboration in the Space Team universe. There are a few authors who are interested in writing their own stories set within the, the wider Space Team universe. Uh, I've done one spin-off series myself. I'm working on a second spin-off series. And then ultimately through the, the publishing company, looking to, to publish authors who perhaps don't um, don't want or don't don't have the technical know-how necessarily to to self-publish, don't want to do that part of it themselves, take over part of that for them and but pay them fairly in a way that traditional publishing doesn't. So it would be the, the bulk of the royalty split would go to the author as opposed to going to the publisher as it does at the moment. So that's long-term plan. Um, shorter term is just uh, keep writing as many books as possible. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us on the podcast today. Final question, the obligatory question is, where can we find out more about you? Okay, so if you go to uh, facebook.com slash Barry J. Hutchison, you can go to barryjhutchison.com 
or I'm just Barry Hutchison on Twitter. That was hybrid author Barry Hutchison chatting to me about his amazing self-publishing journey. I'll have another edition of Paul's Podcast Diary for you this Saturday. That's Saturday the 23rd of June. And the next interview episode is going to be on Monday the 2nd of July, when I'll be chatting to Scottish crime writer Wendy Jones. Until the next diary on Saturday, have a great week of writing. Speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.